Welcome to Spelunking with Plato, a podcast devoted to conversations about liberal education, hosted by the University of St. Thomas's School of Arts and Sciences. Here, students and faculty are called, through the light of faith in the Catholic intellectual tradition, to ascend from Plato's cave, bringing others with them to a vision of the good and a life of human flourishing. Well, it's a pleasure today uh, to have Sister Albert Marie Sermansky here, OP and PhD, uh, for our next conversation um, about liberal learning, liberal education. Um, Sister Albert Marie is a, an assistant professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas and also teaches at St. Mary's Seminary. Um, she grew up in Canada in a vibrant Catholic family, attended Ave Maria College, where she discovered a deep love for the academic life. Um, she received her degree in classics and early Christian literature and um, also walked away with some high honors, I understand. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. Um, so where did she go after Ave? Um, well, her love of learning took her to the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, and um, after initial formation, went back to Ave um, and received a MA in theology, is that correct? That's right, yes. Okay. Um, and then a PhD in systematic theology followed from there uh, with a minor in moral theology. Mm -hmm. So you do all things theological, basically. Yes, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Yes. Um, went on to complete her dissertation, uh, which was a translation and in-depth analysis of a work of medieval sacramental theology, um, St. Albert the Great's On the Body of the Lord. Um, and then... Not stopping there, um, there was a postdoc and publication of your dissertation. Um, and then after your community founded a house here in Houston, you came to UST. Is that roughly correct? That's perfect, yes. Yeah, so. Okay, mm -hmm. all right. And so she's, uh, she's uh, a professor here and a delightful uh, part of our, our, our community. Um, and so thanks again for, for stopping by. Um, as a kind of thought experiment, I, um, I wondered... Um, if you could just think about what, what kind of university uh, would St. Albert the Great found if he were given that task? Maybe, maybe both historically, but also today. What would that look like if he, if he were just given, he had a, a big donor with a big checkbook and just said, St. Albert, just go for it, make something great. What, what would it look like, do you think? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I mean, St. Albert has such a huge corpus of writings. We know he himself personally is interested in um, astronomy, botany, um, biology, a little bit of initial psychology, as well as his theology and philosophy. So I think that's a, a task that he would be very, very, very interested in. He doesn't as much engage in sort of study of literature, but there's, there's quotations in his works that shows he values that, although it's not at that time as you know explicit an academic discipline. So I know that St. Albert's University would be very interested in bringing together many different disciplines. So he would be very, very focused on sort of a holistic view of reality. Although, I mean, reading St. Albert's works, he, he lives at a very interesting time, right? He lives in the 1200s, so you're sort of second generation of the Dominican order, and also at a time where Aristotle's philosophy is coming in, and there's a sort of a certain amount of debate of can we allow this? Aristotle's a you know, pagan philosopher. Some of his ideas aren't compatible with Christianity. Do we throw him out? Do we accept some of them? And St. Albert is really, really prominent in bringing, 
but to the Dominican order in particular, a real valuing of what is valuable in Aristotle and sort of a, a sifting through of what might be problematic or, or not valuable. And you actually see in some of St. Albert's works, he changes his opinions on certain topics mm. during his life. So there's a real sense of um, active investigation into reality and into the world, so sort of an, an openness to truth and an interest in putting things together. And then if more data comes up, maybe trying again in a different way. So there'd be definitely a, a real emphasis on active discussion between departments and disciplines, I think, in a university that he founded. Well, okay, so it would be, there would be a sense of collegiality across the disciplines. Um, yes. And um, he, had, he had a famous pupil. Yes, Thomas Aquinas, right. <laughs> um, right. Who often overshadows him. Um, yes. I think he probably overshadows almost everyone else. <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, rightly so. I will um, say that, rightly so. Yeah, I think so. we're, not here to, we're not here to throw St. Thomas under Look, the bus. Occasionally those people, St. Thomas came up with this idea, and you're like, mm, he expressed it better, but that has roots in Albert. <laughs> so, so there's more of a support there than you realize, although I'll admit St. Thomas, greater clarity, less breadth in some ways, but greater clarity. That's interesting. Yeah, so yeah. What, 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 are those, what were those contributions that you think he took directly from his teacher, St. Albert? Let me see. Maybe in the I realm mean, of education. Is there, are there points of continuity? In the, if, would, if they were both founding universities, would there be strong continuity between them? Would there be differences, do you think? Right. Well, I mean, the first is that openness to Aristotle's philosophy, right? That definitely bring, is brought in by St. Albert, but St. Thomas, you know, takes that up. And he goes further with it, like in his Eucharistic theology, for example, the distinction, substance, and accidents, and defining the sacraments as instrumental causes. There's... Some of that in Albert, but Aquinas is more specific, a little bit more precise. The instrumental efficient causality language you find in Aquinas, you don't quite have in Albert. So, so that, but... Did Albert have as much, did he have as, as wide an access to Aristotle's work? Because those were still being translated, right? Um, yeah, did he have the full range, the full corpus there that Thomas would have later? Well, it's interesting because Albert actually does live longer than Aquinas. Okay. So sort of he's, okay. he's maybe 20-ish 20, 20 years older than Aquinas, but then also Aquinas dies huh. in his 40s and Albert lives to be 80. So by the end of his life, he's had access to, okay, so he's got to, the, what, he's to okay. what Aquinas has had. Huh. But it, he, he lives a little bit earlier, so That's interesting. It, comes in a little bit, right. it comes in a little bit later. Did he comment on yeah. Thomas's work? Did he ever public, go on record for what he thought of his, of his students' works? Some of Thomas's propositions that were condemned as possibly problematic mm -hmm. after, his, after his death, Albert defended. Okay. But there are places in Albert's later works where there's not always a 100% agreement on certain, certain philosophical principles. Interesting. Certain, certain small points. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. And what about the relationship, the role of education in the order? So the relationship of, of faith and reason and how it worked out, did he have to come up against any sort of, you know, maybe pietistic tendencies that would say, we really don't need to educate uh, folks in these disciplines? Yeah, no, that's, that, that's a big thing, actually. In the, I mean, St. Dominic found the Dominican order to, to teach and preach, right? It's with this idea of evangelization. But it's sort of the next generation at the time of Albert and Aquinas where there's this question, how prominent should philosophy, some of these natural, natural disciplines, be in the education, in the order? And you definitely have a push for, just stick to the biblical, stick to the biblical. And Albert and Aquinas are part of a group within the order who are sort of responsible for sort of 
um, looking over the ratio of studies and very influential in making sure that philosophy and philosophy meaning sort of some also natural, there, there's a little bit of science and natural, natural sciences in there as well, that that is valued. Now you do within the order, see that would also be the question if Aquinas, if, if Albert was founding university, what's the purpose? Is, it, is this a Dominican studium? Is this, um, because there, there is a strong emphasis within the order, all truth is good for the mind and all truth is good to understand, but the Dominican vocation is studying it with the idea that you are trying to lead towards the glorification of God and forming many of your people to be good preachers. So I guess there'd be that preaching major <laughs> maybe in, in the That's university, although definitely there's a recognition other studies are, are valuable, but there's a question in Dominican formation, what are you forming your people for specifically at That's that interesting. Time? Well, yeah. here's, here's, here's a, a, um, a turn that I... Maybe, maybe you feel free to comment on, um, you know, I'm thinking of the emphasis in the Second Vatican Council on the role of the laity. Um, and so if, if, if um, this idea that it might look a little bit different if you were founding something for the Dominicans because of their charism toward teaching and preaching, mm -hmm. kind of a pre-Vatican II university for the laity, it might, I'm wondering how that charism would look in relation to a, a, an institution largely for the laity, a Catholic university, if you will versus a post-Vatican II, where there is this sense of priests and religious can't go everywhere and do everything. The laity have to take up their role in the world. Does some of, would some of that emphasis on preaching and teaching flow over into preparing the laity for their work in the world, do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, the history, sort of Albert's early history, we don't we don't know everything with it precisely, but apparently he was probably doing a degree in natural sciences when he feels called to the order. Okay. So he's definitely in favor of the education of the laity, but it is that call into the order that moves him into theology as opposed to focusing more on the natural sciences. So, but I, I mean, I think he would be in favor of everyone knowing as much of the truth of theology as possible. Right. Well, yeah. and I'm thinking about a course that um, you've, you've taught um, in which students are asked to integrate um, what they've achieved um, through their liberal studies and their theological reflections with their professional plans. Um, that seems like that would be in tune with that larger project as well. Yes, uh, yeah. There's a quote, one of Albert's famous quotes, um, all of creation is theology for us. And then he quotes a psalm, because the heavens declare the glory of God, with this sense that he does have a, a strong sense of God as the final end of all of creation, but the sense that you know God's, in some way, goodness, beauty, order, truth, would be seen in each discipline, and a human person living and contributing to society through any particular discipline would also be, you know, do, doing a good work, leading them towards salvation. Hmm. So, sort of th those two ways in which the um, call to holiness would fit into. Two of the different disciplines. So he would, he would in, in his university, he would give particular attention to the role of the laity and, and, and integrated education, you think? Definitely integrated education. I'm trying to think. I don't think he would have any issue with the laity. I'm just trying to think if that's <laughs> sure. a particular, if that's a particular, I mean, he has respect for the church, so the church sure. has, has had a strong focus in that area. Actually, I do remember I did some work on a, 
on Albert's thought about communion. You know, mm -hmm. there's sort of a falling off in the Middle Ages sure. of many people receiving communion. And he, when he addresses this question about lay people receiving communion, he, he's generally frustrated. He's like, huh. it was better in earlier times when more people received communion and that this doesn't fit with the theology. So he, he kind of tries to reconcile it to a sense that, well, you know, the priest is acting as a head of the congregation, so hopefully they're in the state of grace and making a spiritual communion when the priest receives. But he's trying to give a charitable turn to the reality. You see, he, he would like more lay people to be receiving communion. So there, there is a sense of those things which are good and holy, the lay people should be doing them as well. So yeah. I guess you could maybe extrapolate that to some yeah, educational that, thought. That might yeah. be a good, if, if he were here and we were having a Friday afternoon faculty coffee, we could ask him, you know, St. Albert, could you take your thinking about, you know, communion and extend that to education in some ways? Are there parallels there? Yeah, it's, it's one of the places in his writings where he actually, he's not quite as dispassionate as Aquinas. <laughs> there, there's a few places where he'll be, this is a bad idea, this is problematic. Actually, if you find this in a book, just burn that book, so it's not gonna do you any good. You're like, okay, that's, that's a little medieval, but he, he is medieval. Um, but he gets a little hot when he starts talking about the lady, and it's it's frustrating to him that, that, yeah. that this isn't, they aren't receiving communion. He, except he says that there's some pious women who receive communion often, and that's, yeah. a, that's a good thing. Well, he, cool. He'd well, like want... more people to be like the pious woman. And there's a yeah. place for dispassionate scholarship, and there's a place for a very passionate engagement with your topic. He might have been a right. scholar, public intellectual, if he were today, he'd be writing for... I, I think so, because he's, again, in a lot of cases, and when we go back to who ultimately gave us the clearest, best formulation, Aquinas. Right. But in terms of being out there in the discussion and getting people interested in sort of what a public intellectual does, I think that would be... I mean, he had to move his courses outside because his classroom's over and his class is over-enrolled and you just, yeah. everyone who was drawn into it couldn't, sure. couldn't fit in the classroom. So Thomas would be doing the think pieces for the Sunday op-ed and St. Albert might be on Twitter, right? Engaging in the give and take of, insofar as it doesn't just, just, you know, sort of distract him from his scholarly work or do upset his piece for I prayer. think so, I think so. <laughs> Although lovers of Aquinas might, might, might object a little bit, but... No, I mean, there's places in Albert's work where he, in terms of his science, he'll right. be like, there's a, they say this, that, you know, um, ostriches eat metal. And he's like, well, I and some friends went and found an ostrich <laughs> and tried to feed it metal, and it doesn't seem to eat it. So, but often it's like me, me and some others. We went, we went and tried right, sure. this. We went and took a look for ourselves. We went and thought through it for ourselves. So that getting people together and, and investigating. Well, I can yeah, see him actually for Twitter, him. like taking a little video of his friends feeding, uh, feeding an ostrich actually, and trying, yes, and then he, he takes a video and he posts it, right? He says it doesn't work. It doesn't. And then he'd probably invite everyone else, take some, take some metal to your nearest ostrich and let's, let's, let's <laughs> Make sure, you know, I couldn't find it, so let's see if it does it. That's funny. I mean, St. Yeah. Albert on Twitter. I'd follow him. I, I mean, I'd, I'd see what he was up to. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's not into brief sound bites, though. Oh, he okay. might He might, um, he's he's a lot more wordy than Aquinas when okay. you read. He's a little bit of a more complex Latinist. I think his languages are a little bit better than Aquinas, but also, mm. like, where Aquinas might have three or four objections to a question, Albert wants to hear everyone's voice, ah. so he'll put... 25 objections, oh let's goodness. just let, yeah. let every possible perspective, it, it, it's part yeah. of a charity, I think, so to carefully, charitably answering, you know, each one That's and each one and each one and each one. So, uh, wow, well, yeah. that, would be, that would be interesting. Well, um, one, of the, one of the texts um, that you've, you've taught um, is uh, Stephen Barr's uh, a little, it's a very rich guide, um, but it's, it's called A Student's Guide to Natural Science. And, um, um, you know, this, this idea 
um, that natural science should be a part of liberal learning. Often when folks think of the liberal arts, um, a couple of mistakes are made. Uh, unfortunately, rather commonly, is they think it's political, it's liberal, it must be, you know, you know they raise yes. all kinds of interesting questions. Um, but then also, um, they hear the word arts, and they, they think it's, it, it's divorced from the sciences. Um, and yet we know from the quadrivium, right, that, uh, in the trivium, that the quadrivium was where the mathematical, and though music was there, it was primarily a mathematical art, along with arithmetic, um, and then astronomy, of course, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so, and, and then, you know, you've got, uh, you've got geometry. The, um, so there's, there's a place in the liberal arts and liberal studies for, um, for the scientific, for scientific inquiry. Um, what, what does science bring to liberal learning? I mean, is it, does it, how, how do you see science's place within this larger, larger task of liberating our students? Yeah, so probably probably a few different things because I mean, first of all, part of the idea of liberal arts is the mind is capable of engaging with reality, and there's sort of a meaningful meaningful whole. You may not see the whole, but there's you know you you can see how at least large parts are related to each other, and then work on the you know the specific detailed questions. So even for people who aren't going to major in science or be hugely, hugely interested in it, sort of that recognition, you have a mind that's, this part of reality is intelligible and you can begin to, to understand some of it, not to be afraid of it. People, often there can be an attitude of exaggerated awe towards science or even, or even fear of it. So an including of at least some scientific courses in a liberal arts education kind of opens the door to further thought about that area of reality and takes away takes away some fear, I think. And also, you know, certain patterns of, of order and beauty, it's it's amazing to see them in, in different disciplines. I mean, Stephen Barr is, I believe, a physicist, or at right. least very interested in physics, and he tries to look at some of the ways in which number and order and beauty in physics, although physics in its mathematical current form isn't direct, a part of the traditional liberal arts, right. but he, he sees um, the relationship there. Yeah, there's a deep yeah. um, mathematical, almost there's an intelligibility to the, to the natural world, mm -hmm. right? It's not, um, mm -hmm. and there are also natural causes. We don't have to invoke divine action for everything we encounter in nature. Absolutely, um, absolutely. So we, we can investigate the natural world and hope to discover its underlying truths, and they're probably mathematical. Um, you know, and that, that really takes us back to the ancients in many ways. I think of the Timaeus and, uh, and that, uh, and we're back at the quadrivium. Um, and, yet, uh, and yet, doing some other, readings from other traditions, one often encounters you know, God intervening just to, to create certain things and certain things happening in nature, but, but, but that medieval view of science accepts that there are natural causes that we don't have. We don't have to make a, appeals to divine action. Absolutely, that God as the first cause creates the world, but then God upholds it and allows things, makes them able to, they unfold according to their own natural causality. Yeah. And that's, that would be very dear to St. Albert because the Aristotelian, you know, th these are real substances. They really are what they are. They really have impacts. They really, they really are causes and can right. be investigated. And it's not yeah. things like species and, and gene these aren't things that we just put over nature to make it more intelligible. It's actually rooted in, in, in reality. Uh, right, it's right. At a deep level. Um, 
Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And, and even also the connections, I think, between the scientific investigations of the Middle Ages and contemporary science. There's not only a, not only a mathematical connection, there are precedents for a lot of, a lot of contemporary science. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting that science and would, would be very much, have, very much have a role in contemporary liberal education. Um, it's not just poetry and sociology. <laughs> it's, it's something much broader. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I could ask you since you're a member of um, a religious order. Um, yeah. And you know, there it's interesting some of the parallels between the collegiate order, if you will, the collegiate life, the university life. You know, I, I heard one of my colleagues once described the gowns we wear at at convocation and graduation as kind of being um, pseudo uh, liturgical garments. Right, and we don't take it too seriously. There's this, almost a kind of joco seriousness to it all, right? It's so. There, I'm wondering if mm -hmm. if you found any connections between religious life, a religious order, and the collegiate university life. Um, there's no tenure, I don't guess, as a Dominican. You don't have to put all your work in, in you either. You're, you, but maybe there is. I, what, yeah. What are the parallels? Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting question. I'm smiling just a little bit because actually, when I take part in formal academic functions, I do have an academic hood, but instead of the robe, I wear my Dominican mantle. Okay, so, all right. And yeah. it's, it's um, very solemn looking. It's made of wool, so it's a little, in Houston, in the, the heat of the commencement, <laughs> it's a little bit of a sacrifice. But yeah, yeah. The, man, the mantle's interesting because you wear it for occasions of penance, you wear it for certain solemn occasions, and when, you're, when you die, you'll be buried in it. So oh, it's, wow. a, it's wow. interesting. But so, but it's so much like an academic robe that it doubles for that. Interesting. So that, that interesting. is interesting. But yeah, parallels between community life and collegiate life. I mean, there, there are quite a few. You're gathered together, not because you're, you know, from the same family or whatever, but because you're pursuing a common goal. Right. And in our community, I mean, we have sisters who teach at, I mean, we have sisters who teach early childhood first grade, elementary school, middle school, high school. So you have people pursuing that common good of salvation of souls, spreading the truth, your own personal holiness through very, what looks like very different activities on the ground, right? Which is in a way similar to the way I'm doing research in my Latin texts, in my, my computer, in my office, in the theology department is going to look different than what the, um, you know, the, the nursing department is doing. So there's sort of different some different daily activities, but in pursuit of, you know, the good of the whole. And of course, there's a, an order, hopefully a, a functional order within the structure, right, of both a religious community and a university. Um, I mean, I think I, I find the structure within the university with your department chair and your dean and the administration. Sure. I find it um, a friendly thing to have because I'm in my order. You have the superior, and and, and there, you realize levels of authority are there to to order and to help you. So I normally feel like I should be. I, I, hope I, so. I, I naturally want to reach out to the different <laughs> levels, and you know, to help with this and order this. Sure. And, and I, I've found that to be to be good here. Um, huh. I mean, maybe maybe tenure would be similar to final vows. You know, yeah, the community that yeah. sort of went, but you're you're committed mm. for life and the community is committed to you, although it's not quite as a permanent or as deep sort of connection to a university. Right. There's, there's some parallels there. Yeah. I don't have to submit a portfolio every few years <laughs> to my order, <laughs> which yeah. is nice. Although if I submit one to the university, I'll usually share it with the superiors at the order so they can see what I'm doing. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe this 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 will lead into an, another question. That I think that yeah. is related to this topic, and that you're you're in a unique position to to really provide um, some insights. So when we think about the different models for higher education, you sort of have the monastic schools in which deeply you know deeply integrated prayer and study. Right. Um, right. Then you've got the, the medieval universities, which have a different model. Then you've got the German research university. Um, and then there was a tension for a lot of colleges and universities in the 20th century, and um, I can think of at least two right now that had a, kind of an internal fight over whether we're, we're basically passing on knowledge, or are we also trying to form our students in terms of their characters? Um, right. And the people who wanted to form the students in their characters usually lost. And and there was a there was a kind of okay we're just gonna we're just gonna manage student life and make sure they don't kill each other, um, and then we're gonna try to make the classroom as good as but but we're, we're, we've given up on a kind of ethical formation of our students a paideia if you will of the students that's 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 old hat. How do you see the contemporary Catholic university navigating this? Because you've got experiences in religious orders which obviously mm -hmm. have have these aims. And then you're also in a, no one would accuse the Dominicans of being slouches intellectually. And yet you, you integrate this deeply. Does that flow over into contemporary intellectual life or, or could it flow over in, at a Catholic institution? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because it, it, it is true in Dominican formation, you have you know, a shared schedule. We get up at five in the morning, you have shared I'm prayers. not advocating that for the university, by no, the way. No, 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 no. But there, there is a very strong structure of life and the, the prayer life and the time spent in prayer is considered essential to, to your ability to function in your more professional aspects of life. You're a postulate as a Dominican. But, I mean, it's it, yeah. It's a challenging question, especially because at a Catholic university, the students who come to us come from so many different backgrounds and come with somewhat different goals, right? In a religious order, everyone who's joining is Catholic and and open to a certain liturgical sacramental formation, and we want to be able to welcome students from different backgrounds. But there, it is a challenging practical question. I guess at a school in a city where we have and, you, and want to be open to many people who aren't coming from a Catholic background, the key might be what's offered, sort of sure. what's offered and what's available. I mean, definitely to have the ability to participate in Catholic liturgical life is very, very important to a Catholic at the right. university that there's mass offered and the retreats offered and the sacrament of confession and that i guess questions of how does this relate to to the whole how does this relate to morals and ethics can be brought into the classroom but mm. you right how the students actually order their days and living that out right you want them to have freedom because right. you want them to Truly, truly absorb that, but you also want to make it prominent and beautiful and attractive. I guess you have to focus on on those things. Yeah, well, yeah. I think you mentioned you mentioned yeah, you making might have things. Other yeah, mentioning uh, yeah. having making things available. You know, you know, UST we have we have daily mass mm -hmm. um, at noon. You know, 
faculty and students can gather for the Angelus and, and midday prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit tough in, during, co- during COVID tide, right. but, but you know, things like a campus rosary retreats, um, you know. Confessions, um, there's always, sometimes I'll try and go to a confession on campus and there's always students in line, yeah. which, is, which is beautiful. Yeah, that's really see. wonderful. Yeah. But you know, making that available, honoring the freedom yes. of the students, but also kind of mm-hmm. inviting them to, to participate while, uh, and then, you know, when you've got students at different points in their journey, um, yeah. but then it seems like also one of the great things about a university, at least, is you've, you've got a chance to really integrate faith and reason in a deep way, both in the classroom, but also outside too. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's, yeah, that, that's great. Well, if, where would be a good place uh, to start with St. Albert if, if our listeners wanted to pick up a text? Uh, should they pick up your published translation? Uh, would, that, would that be a great place to start? Sure. I mean, you want to make up, make, yeah, tell us about that work. Maybe that's, that would be yeah, a... Yeah, because I was going to say the challenge with picking up a work by St. Albert is the majority of his corpus is still not in, the, in English. Well, I so, heard there's a fine so translation. Latin. There's a um, fine translation available from Catholic University Press. I think. Yes, so I, I have done a translation of St. Albert's work on the body of the Lord, which is a, a very beautiful work of Eucharistic theology. So it's an interesting text because it's partly devotional as well as somewhat okay. scholastic. So it's long. It's very beautiful. It's not a text you really pick up and read through from cover to cover. Mm. You sort of, you sort of think about it more as sort of short meditations and they're more devotional or more taken from his commentary on the sentences, but with the objections somewhat cut out, but sometimes in there based on what the, what the particular topic is, but you would, you really get a sense of the, um, devotion and the richness, and then some of the, the rigorous thought as well. Yeah, yeah. so it, it, is a, it is a good text. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, there's at, so yeah. many things I want to ask you about, but we're out of time for this conversation. Oh, okay. So, But thank yeah. you so much for, uh, for, for, for this, this discussion, and um, look forward to future conversations. Sounds great. Okay, take care. <laughs>